As Aaron said, my name's Daniel. I am one of the pastors here at Aletheia Church, and just want to say it's good to see each and every one of you on this fine and beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, in honor of this being Thanksgiving week, uh, I, I have a special treat for you, as all the stores are going to have for you this week, and it is a two-for-one special, all right? You're going to get two sermons for the price of one this morning. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to go over my allotted time, but I want you to know you're going to get a five-minute sermon followed by the regular sermon, okay? And the reason I'm doing this is because we here uh, at Aletheia Church normally do expository preaching, meaning we go verse by verse and word by word. And sometimes if I skip over a couple of words, some of you get really bothered and upset and you tell me it ruins your entire week and you just don't know how you're going to go on with your life, Dan Green. And, um, and so, uh, so just for you, Dan Green, this is a five-minute sermon that the rest of you have to sit through just for Dan Green. So 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to start in the second half of verse 2 and go through verse 5. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. So, sermon number one has four points, and these are how to spot a false teacher. So, whether you're here today, you need to be examining my words, any church in the future, or if you are crazy enough to watch some televangelist on TV, which that's where most of the false teachers reside, you need to know how to spot a false teacher. Number one, he is going to teach something that contradicts what Jesus says. All right? If you hear someone say something that is totally opposite of what Jesus says, you know you are listening to a false teacher. Point number two, he will teach something that contradicts godly living. All right? Now, what is godly living? It is the instructions that we have in the Word of God of how we are to live our lives. And Paul tells us, if you hear a person doing one of these two things, this person is puffed up with conceit. They think they know better than Jesus. And the fact is, they know absolutely nothing. Point number three is this. This type of individual craves controversy and likes to quarrel about words. And I don't know if you've ever been a part of this experience with someone who likes to quarrel about the words and the meanings of words. When I was pastor of a church in Seattle that I started uh, many moons ago, it seems like now, um, I remember there was a guy who came into our church and he'd been around for a few weeks and he had been in a Bible study and some people had some questions, some red flags come up. And so I knew as the lead pastor, it was my job to, to kind of uh, meet with him and talk to him. And so one night as he was going into that Bible study, he said, hey, let me meet you and talk to you and, and see, uh, see what you're all about. And so we had this, this nice conversation for a while. And then he started talking about soul sleep. And I don't know if you've ever heard this whole thing about soul sleep, but the word death doesn't really mean death in the Bible. It means soul sleep. And he started giving me all these implications for what soul sleep meant and how it, because he had this whole theology built around this thing called soul sleep. And he, eventually he finally said to me, he said, Daniel, and if you will only let me become your private teacher, this church will grow beyond your wildest dreams. And with that, I responded to him, sir, it is time for you to leave and to never return to the Bridge Church. 
And so therefore he was escorted out of the building and he was never allowed to return again. Okay. So there will be people who want to quarrel over words and change the meanings of words. And, and they're going to say things to you that you, you're not going to know what they are because you're going to think, oh, they have some deeper meaning because they said, this is what the Greek says. This is what the Hebrew says. And it may or may not say that, but these people often just want to quarrel over the words. And he says, this will produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And then he tells us their motivation, why they are doing these things. This type of teacher imagines that godliness is a means of great gain. Now, this is not just financial gain. This can be power. This can be influence. But in this particular situation, we know and we can see that the motivation for this person was so that they could put profit in their pocket. And this person was only serving himself. So there you go. That is sermon number one for you this morning. Now let's move on to sermon number two and will be the heart of what we talk about. And I want to uh, begin this sermon with a story, a story that was told to me uh, a while back, and it's one I've always appreciated and, I, and I've used constantly as a reminder and an illustration in my own life. About 50 years ago, there was a company here in the United States that was successful and it wanted to expand its operations outside the border of the United States. And so it was seeking a place south of the United States to expand its operations. And this was a good company and it wanted to, to treat people well. And so it had sent a young executive down to a foreign land and to scout out some land, to scout out some territory, and to even scout out a village of people who could carry on this work that they needed. They eventually found the people and the land that would produce the crop that they wanted, and they entered into negotiation with them and agreed to pay them well. And after a month, um, work was going really well. The company was pleased. The young executive was pleased. The people were happy. And on the very last day of the month, it came time to pay these people who had began these jobs. And everyone went away really happy. And on Monday, feeling really good about himself, the young executive rises out of bed and he goes into work to meet everybody, to get everyone going, and no one shows up. And because it was south of the border, he thought they might be on manana time. And uh, he was going, you know, where are they at? Maybe they just had a little much, too much fun with the money that they made, and they're going to be a little slow coming in. 10 o'clock rolls around, nobody shows up. 11 o'clock rolls around, nobody shows up. 12 o'clock, nobody shows up. He's like, well, I've got to go check this out because I know that they know they're supposed to be at work today. And so he goes into the village. He's like, hey, where are you guys at? Why aren't you coming to work? And they said, sorry, we're not coming back to work. He's like, well, what do you mean you're not coming back to work? Like we've invested all this time and effort and, and energy into you guys. We had this agreement that you were going to do all this work and we were going to build this thing here. They said, yeah, but you don't, you don't understand. Um, you've actually paid us enough from one month's work that we have everything we need for the rest of our lives. Needless to say, the young man was dejected. Not only was he dejected, he was really worried about what the next steps were going to be because he had got his whole project going. He knew that if he didn't get these people back to work, that he was going to lose his job and that his career was going to be over. And so frantically trying to figure out what he can do to entice these people, get back to work. He remembered that just before he had left the States, 
the Sears catalog had arrived in his mailbox. Now, some of you are going, one, what is Sears? And number two, what is a catalog? Okay. So before there was this digital internet thing where you could go shopping all the time, in my era, this catalog about this thick would come of October of every year. And it was the highlight of every child in America because about 400 pages came in the mail of all the new toys, all the new things that you would ever want for Christmas. And I remember spending hours upon hours upon hours laying on my stomach on the floor, dreaming about all the toys my parents were going to buy me, circling them, Xing them out, and then going back and circling. So I got the perfect list for Christmas to hand over to Santa Claus. This young man remembered that he had this in his briefcase. And he took it to these people and he says this to them. As he opens up the catalog, he says, but look at all the stuff you could have if you just came back to work. And the very next day, everyone showed back up to work. Now, the question from this story is, what was it in that moment when that young man showed those people that catalog, what was the switch that flipped inside of their heart? And the switch that flipped was the switch of discontentment. Because before they saw that catalog, they had told that young man, we have everything we need for the rest of our lives. We don't have to work anymore. But the moment that their eyes saw what was possible and what they could have, they were no longer content with what they had. And now they longed for something more. Now, I want to say to you, the struggle of being content is not just for us in a digital world. But yet, it is an incredible struggle for us because we are inundated with advertising and messages three inches from our face for hours a week. I mean, just this morning, right? I got my weekly screen time update. And I'm not going to tell you how much it was. But you know how it is. You get this weekly update of how much time you spent on the screen if you are an Apple user. And every week I say to myself, oh my gosh, I just need to throw this thing in the garbage. How many hours every day are we exposed to this messaging? How much does this cause discontentment in my life and in your life? But let me say, this, this is not just a problem for us in the digital world. I want to say that the issue of discontentment is one that has been around since the very beginning and actually was in the package that was a part of the very first sin that entered into the world. Because if you remember in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, when Satan comes and he tempts Adam and Eve, and, and he tips them with this shiny piece of fruit. What, what does he tell them? He tells them, if you will eat of this fruit, you could have something that you don't have, the knowledge of good and evil. And no longer being content with the knowledge that they currently have and being obedient to God, they settled for the rotten fruit of discontentment and chose to listen to the lies of the devil. And so we have to ask ourselves as individuals, how many times have we chosen to eat the shiny, beautiful on the outside, but rotten to the core on the inside fruit 
because of discontentment. Where do we see this in our lives? With this entire setup, let me introduce you to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, and to my main topic today. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. So if you are taking notes, here is your title, here is your message for today. Godliness with contentment is great gain. This is going to be the focus of everything that we talk about for the rest of the message. Now let's focus on this first word, godliness. Because ever since the end of chapter 3, this has been the common thread and the common theme that has woven itself throughout every single message that you have heard preached and taught here at Aletheia Church because it has been the thread and the theme that Paul expounds upon in many different ways. And so in chapter 3, verse 16, we were first told that Jesus is the mystery of godliness revealed. In chapter 4, verse 7, we are told that we are to train ourselves in godliness. In chapter 4, verse 8, we're told godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the one that is to come. In chapter 4, verse 15, we are told to practice godliness so that our progress may be evident to all. And as we got into chapter 5, we saw that the church in Ephesus has given practical examples of what godliness looks like and how to practice it, how to honor those who are older than you, how to take care of widows, how you are to conduct your life if you are a widow, how to honor the elders and pastors of the church, how to discipline an elder caught in sin, and even the difficult subject of how one is to conduct themselves as a slave, where we see the godly principles of honor, submission, obedience, and love as found in the master-slave relationship, just to which I will say Theo did an amazing and wonderful job. If you did not listen to that sermon from last week, you need to make it a priority on your drive home to see mom and dad this weekend or some of your downtime to go and to listen to that message. But we have not exhausted this topic of godliness. So let me give you a big, broad definition that will allow you to to confidently pursue godliness all the days that God will grant you. And the definition for godliness is this, doing that which is well-pleasing to God. Paul has not exhausted all of godliness in 1 Timothy. We have not exhausted all the things you are to do. So if you are looking in your life, how do I become a godly person? How do I live a godly life? You simply, simply, right? Very simply, very easy. Do what God tells you to do. And you may be going, well, gosh, how much is that? And one time I asked that question when I was a pastor at my previous church. And because I asked that question, one of my elders goes, all right, I'm going to give you an assignment. You have now been tasked with the assignment to go and write down everything that God tells us to do and to not do in the New Testament. So I spent a good amount of time on this project. And by the time I was done, I came up with 10 pages, single spaced of everything we are told to do and to not do in the New Testament. So the list is long, it is exhaustive, and there's a lot of instruction in God's word for us on what it means and what it looks like to do that which is well-pleasing to God. So my challenge to you, uh, my instruction to you, in order to know what is pleasing to God, we need to turn to Scripture, and this is what Scripture itself repeatedly affirms. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, which will be at uh, after the new year. 
All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Godliness is not the main point of my message today. Godliness alone is not the main point of my message today. Because in order to achieve this great gain that Paul says is available to us, we must combine that with the ever-elusive word contentment. Now, whether you can define the word precisely or not, I know it is something that every single human being desires strongly. Just, Just imagine if you could live a life where you were completely and totally content to where you actually longed for and wanted nothing you did not currently have. I mean, that would be an amazing life. And sometimes I'm like, how do you you live that life? How How do you arrive at this place of being completely and totally content with what you have and longing for nothing else? It's a profound question and one that is not easily answered in really trying to figure it out and to become content. I can help you along the way. I can help myself along the way and tell you what Scripture says, and that's what we're going to try and do today with some practical examples. But I want you to realize that the challenge of becoming content may be the greatest challenge in your life. We are going to simply define contentment as this, the state of happiness or satisfaction. Now, I'm going to lean on the satisfaction side in the illustration that I'm about to give you. And I think I had to think about this. What is something that I think would be common to all of us? And in light of the Thanksgiving holiday, I, I chose the topic of food, right? We have all ex- had the experience of hunger right now. Some of you may be hungry because you chose to sleep in and not eat breakfast before you came here. And the whole time, your eyes have been over there eyeing the donuts that are sitting on the table. And right now, even though you may not be hungry, you may be starting to get hungry. You're like, oh, donuts. Yes, I remember donuts. They taste good. They are wonderful. I like the chocolate on the top cream on the inside, or maybe you're a sprinkle person or a jelly person. I don't get you jelly people at all. But, um, you know, maybe you are one of those weird jelly donut people, in my opinion. And so, but we all have this experience with hunger. And so it it creates this discontentment in us. And, and eventually we choose how we're going to fill it. And some of you, immediately after this sermon, uh, and you know, hopefully you can resist temptation that long, you're going to go over there and you're going to attempt to satisfy your hunger, to make your hunger content by eating a donut. Now, what you know and what I know because of the lack of nutritional benefit of that, it will not satisfy your hunger for very long at all. Where on the other hand, if you were to come to my gospel community today, where we are going to have all of these awesome, wonderful food and soups and all this great hearty meal, you, we are going to eat in such a way that when we are done eating, we are completely satisfied because we have satiated 
our hunger, and we know that we are going to remain satisfied and content for a much longer period of time. But how often in this life do how often do we try to satisfy the discontentment in our life with donuts rather than complete and whole meals, right? How often in our digital and our social media world and the advertisements that come after us, do, do we find ourselves with what I like to call when and then thinking? When I get this, then I will be happy. When I get that job, then I will be content. When I get that spouse, then I will be content. When I get that pay raise, when I get that toy, when I get that gun, when I, when I get that new car, whatever it is, when I get ever get this much money in my bank account, then I will be satisfied. Then I will be content. When you find yourself having when and then thinking, you need to immediately realize that you have fallen into the sin of discontentment. And I would encourage you to acknowledge that sin, confess that sin, and repent of that sin immediately. Too often we try to feed ourselves with the donuts of discontentment. But let me remind you of the words of Jesus, who when he was tempted, during his fasting of 40 days, when Satan came to him, Jesus responded with these words to Satan. Man does not live on donuts alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if you're familiar with the scripture, you know it says man does not live on bread alone, not donuts. But you get the point. Jesus' instruction to us is that how we live, how we satisfy ourselves is not with external temporal things, even as something as good as food and as needed as food. But true satisfaction comes by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so my encouragement to you and to myself is that we need to devour the word of God. We need to devour what it says about him, what it says about us, because this is truly the perfect meal that satisfies our soul in all circumstances. This should lead us to asking the next question. Okay, Daniel, you've told me that I need to be content. Surely you've acknowledged some way in which you are discontent. But the question is, what am I to be content with? Because there are just some basics in life that we need. And so what does Scripture inform us is the bare necessities that if we have those, with those things alone, we can be content and need or want nothing else. And I'm so glad you asked that question. And I'm so glad that Paul has answered that question for us in verses seven and eight. Now we'll go back to verse six just to get into the flow. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. 
Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Paul is just one of those guys who is extreme and just always goes all out in everything that he does. Surely there is no way in the world that this guy can be serious that if I have a set of clothing on my back and I have food in my belly, that is all I need to be completely and totally content for the rest of my life. Well, just to make sure that Paul is not a false teacher and Paul is not saying something that's outlandish and over the top, let's turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, and what is known as the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's see what Jesus says about the topic of contentment. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I think you can see that Paul's words align with the words of Jesus. It might possibly be that this is the... This is the sermon that Paul had in his mind when he's laying down these words. He's remembering these words that Jesus had preached in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, this is how I can talk about what it means to be content. That godliness with contentment is great gain. But let's just just be honest. Let's ask ourselves the question. Do you think it's possible for you to be totally content with just food and clothing? Is this a paradigm-shifting moment for you? Can you recognize and realize in your own life all the places that you find this root of discontentment welling itself up and bearing fruit in your life because you're not content with food and clothing? because you're anxious about what tomorrow will bring. I think we can all say we see evidence of this in our lives. And like the Christmas list you made as a little kid, there might be a discontentment list you need to make, that you need to acknowledge, that you need to confess, and that you need to repent of. One quote I came across that they're going to put up on the screen is that, Christian contentment means 
that my satisfaction is independent of my circumstances and possessions. Now just think about that for a moment. Christian contentment, being truly content, means that my satisfaction is independent of my circumstances and possessions. It obliterates when and then thinking. Now, let's make it a little more fun and add, add the last layer to this message. Let's complete this nice, dense, heavy meal of steak and mashed potatoes and broccoli. And let's try and choke down these last two verses, all right? But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This could have been five sermons easily in and of itself, all right? And I'm going to try and give it to you in a very small window of time. And if you would like to chat about this afterward, uh, you know there's. I love to talk about money and business and all those things. I'll glad, gladly have this conversation with whoever would like to have it afterwards. Let me say something right, right up front, because I, I just want to say, when it comes to the subject of money, this is probably one of the areas that Christians miss understand more than anything else. We have an incredibly poor theology of money and possessions. And usually you're going to go way off to one side or way off to the other. So I want to kind of clarify things for you as simply as I can this morning. Now, what I, what I want to say, and listen, just pay attention. Right here, Paul is not developing a philosophy that equates the material world with evil, okay? He is not advocating a Christian culture that requires poverty. He is drawing a definite line between possessions and true contentment, and the former has no bearing on the latter, okay? There are many Christians who think it is more righteous to be poor than it is righteous to be rich, because we see God deal with the subject of money a lot in the Scripture. But you need to understand, when it comes to the Bible, and if you're a note taker, this is for you, there are four categories of people when it comes to money in the Scripture. When you look at the totality of Scripture, there is the rich righteous, there's the rich unrighteous, there's the poor righteous, and the poor unrighteous. That generally when you look in Scripture, these are the four categories that are talked about. The Bible does not speak or of the middle, middle class. You, you don't see middle class economics really discussed in Scripture. You usually see people broken down into those four categories. And you need to understand that having wealth, having money, having riches is not a sinful thing. In fact, if you go back and look at the Old Testament covenant, where God says there will be blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience, if you look at the list of blessings, it is littered and filled with wealth, with money, with land, with possessions, and with resources. 
So if money and riches and possessions in itself is evil, then that now puts God into the category that is not good because he is saying, this is what I'm going to pour out on you if you are righteous and in obedience with the Old Testament covenant. But too many Christians only taking verses like this, usually out of context, they believe that money is the root of all evil. But that is not what the passage says. The passage says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. So money is just a thing. Being rich is not the problem. Now, this is going to sound contradictory, but let me bear it out. Being rich is not the problem. Desiring to be rich is. Daniel, are are you saying it's possible to get rich without desiring to be rich? Yes. Probable? Eh. Possible? Yes. Let me say it this way and see if this helps. Having a lot of money is not a sin. Being discontent with the amount of money you have, that's the sin. The sin is being discontent with what you currently have. If you're content with a big pile of money, that is not necessarily a sin because it depends on what you're doing with that money. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of it is. I'm going to quote a a good friend of mine here. He says, money is like a hammer. It's versatile. And depending on how you use it, it can create something awesome or destroy something beautiful. For example, your life. Your life can look and feel so much better if you use money to build something, but your life can look like someone's worst nightmare if you let money control and use you. And so as Christians, we need to have a proper theology and understanding of money. It can be proven throughout Scripture that God blesses people with incredible wealth. It can be proven through Scripture that God sometimes takes away all of someone's wealth, whether they are righteous or they are unrighteous. And this all falls under the sovereign hand of God. The the question for us is, are we going to be responsible with what we have? Are we going to be responsible and steward appropriately what God has given us? Because having a lot of money, again, money is just a thing. You know, and I let me say, I, I speak to this from practical experience. You know, Lee and I, we met as missionaries in Africa. And if you think of people who are rich and have a lot of money, missionary is not at the top of the list, okay? When we were in seminary and beyond seminary planting the church for several years there, each and every month we had $10 of disposable income. That's two coffees. And that's it. I'm talking about for years this went on, okay? Like she got two cups of coffee a month, I got two cups of coffee a month. Like, that was it. There was nothing else we did for fun because we had no money. But let me say, 
in that time, I was probably more content with not having anything than I am now. Because along the way and starting a church and planting a church, my wife started a business that God blessed beyond our wildest dreams. And at 41 years old, I retired financially. And I get to come here and do ministry. We moved here to just do ministry for free and to love on you guys and be a part of this church. And, but now I'll be honest, being content is way harder because now the temptation is to hold on to it. Because when it, when it comes to money, you got to realize when we, when we think about being rich, I mean, maybe you want to be rich because you, you want to buy stuff, right? Then you got to realize the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, um, verses 15, 16, and 17, the lust of the eyes, the lust of flesh, and the pride of life. So typically you're going to be bent toward materialism or, or sensuality, right? And some of you, like you just love stuff, right? And because, uh, you know, a lot of people will just go buy, when they, they feel bad, what do they do? They go shopping, right? And they buy stuff because they think it's going to make them feel better. And some of you just like stuff. I don't like stuff. You know what I like? I like security. And you know, and you know what the danger in that is? I want to see the pile grow, right? I want to see it grow and grow and grow because it makes me feel secure the bigger the pile gets. Because if the government comes for more taxes or if there's a nuclear holocaust or whatever's going to come that all the doomsdayers have been preaching about ever since the world was created, right? I want to know I got enough piled, stockpiled somewhere that my family's going to be okay, that I'm going to be okay, that I don't have to go back living like a poor person. And it is the temptation that I fight every single day but in God's providence, he has, he has brought me in, in connection with a man who has started over 70 companies in his life. A man who has more money than all of us sitting here today by far. This man influences over a billion dollars of other people's money, and it's all being used for the good of the kingdom. This man lives in a $65,000 house in the middle of Poe, dunk, redneck, backwoods, Alabama. When his truck blew an engine last year with 300,000 miles, he didn't go buy a new truck. He bought a new engine. Because all he wants to do is to build wealth for people and use it around the world. And so he's starting schools. He's starting orphanages. He is doing things in so many countries around the world, all for the extension and the expansion of the kingdom of God. And let me say to you, this God gifts and blesses certain people with an incredible ability to make money hand over fist. And we should not ridicule them. We should celebrate them and encourage them to do incredible amounts of good. And you may be that person. You may be that person that everything you touch turns to gold for the rest of your life. And I want to encourage you, don't ever let, ever let anyone shame you for doing that. Make as much money as you can to do as much good as you can for the kingdom of God, spreading the wealth around the world to that the gospel would go forth, that the story of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection would go forth. But maybe you're not that person. Maybe God has called you to be a school teacher. And if God has called you to be a school teacher, I can just almost guarantee you will not be rich and wealthy. If he's called you to be a social worker, I can almost guarantee you, you will not be rich and wealthy unless someone hands you a big inheritance check or you play the lottery, okay? Like it's just not 
going to happen. But for you, can you learn to be content doing what God has called you to do? Can you find yourself being content with simply having food in your stomach and clothes on your back? This does not matter your status, rich or poor. The question is, can you be content with what you have? It is a profound and difficult question. And, and, and let me say this to you, and you, you need to listen to me because the, what I'm about to say goes against everything we are as Americans and everything you're going to hear and see in the self-help section of any bookstore you go into or on Amazon. You can't do contentment. I cannot give you, nor can anyone else give you, the five simple steps to becoming content. It does not exist. If you think this is just going to happen and there's some program out there, but let me say, if you have this program, you will be an incredibly rich person and use all that money for the glory of God. All right? Because you'll solve most of the world's problems. I promise. You have to understand Christians must discover contentment the old-fashioned way, and none of us like it. But it's simply this. We must learn it. We must go through the trial and fires and afflictions in order to learn contentment because it is ever elusive. And this is something that Paul tells us. So Paul's writing this to the church in Ephesus. But back in Philippians chapter 4, 11 through 13, Paul also discusses contentment. And he does it in the context of the University of Florida's favorite son's favorite Bible verse, Philippians 4.13, right? We all know Timmy T had his little eye thing, you know, Philippians 4.13, because that's exactly what this verse intended was to help him play football better. I love Tim Tebow, but that verse is way out of context. Because just listen to what Paul is saying. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. The whole context of this verse is exactly what we've been talking about today. Paul said, there are times where I was shipwrecked, beaten, tortured, stoned, and had nothing, and I had to learn how to be content. And there have been times, and if you know about Paul's upbringing, he would have most likely been a pretty wealthy, pretty wealthy person growing up. He said he's had abundance. He's had everything he needed and more but he had to learn to be content. And he knew this was not something he could do. He knew he had to depend on Jesus Christ in order to find contentment. So as you seek to be content, you must know this is something that 
only God by a sovereign hand can teach you and only God through His supernatural strength can give you. We cannot do contentment. It is taught by God. We need to be schooled in it. It is part of the process of being transformed to the renewing of our minds, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2. It is commanded of us to be content, content, but paradoxically, it is created in us, not done by us. It is not the product of a series of actions, but of a renewed and transformed character. Go to Romans 5, 1-5 if you want to read about transformed character. It involves the growth of a good tree that produces good fruit. Sinclair Ferguson says, True contentment means embracing the Lord's will in every aspect of His providence simply because it is His providence. Christian contentment, therefore, is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at His disposal in the place He appoints at the time He chooses with the provision He is pleased to make. Let me repeat that for you as the closing of this sermon. Christian contentment, therefore, is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at His disposal in the place He appoints, at the time He chooses, with the provision He is pleased to make. That is contentment. Though we cannot do contentment, there are things that we can do to learn contentment. And so I'm going to give us an opportunity to practice as we get ready to transition for the band to come back up and into communion. If you have your scriptures, uh, I think they have it up on the screen though. 1 Thessalonians verses 5, 16 through 18. If you are going to begin with the place to learn commitment, contentment, I would encourage you to go to, to these verses. They are short. They are simple and easy to remember and recognize. And they are a great teacher for us to become content in this life. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 says this, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. One of the favorite questions of all college students is, what is God's will for my life? And you are looking for the job, the career, the spouse, the place to move. And the Bible does not say that God is going to make all those things clearly apparent for you as His perfect design, divine will, and He's just going to draw it out on a map for you. But there are places where He has specifically drawn it out for you, His exactly prescribed will. This is not God's described will. This is a prescription. This is a doctor writing the order of what you can do in order to learn contentment. And so it's these three things I would encourage you to start incorporating into your life that I want you, as the band begins to play for the next minute or two, to meditate on these three things, to rejoice always. 
And right now, life may be really hard. Life is really hard right now in the middle of everything going on. But how can you rejoice in your present and current circumstances? You are going to need to pray without ceasing. And how can you give thanks as you sit here right now on this Thanksgiving week in all of your circumstances? Because all of your circumstances, if you will recognize they are from the hand of a sovereign God, specifically so that you could learn to be content in your circumstances, this will begin to set you free to learn what true contentment is. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So I'll just encourage you over the next minute or two just to pray, to rejoice, and to give thanks for what you have currently in this life.